0: We are honored today to welcome Dr. Willie Jennings as the 2018 Hansen Lecturer. And as you now understand, Willie, being a Hansen Lecturer means this better come from the top drawer for you. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Jennings is the Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Africana Studies at Yale Divinity School. He was previously Associate Professor of Theology and Black Church Studies at Duke University Divinity School, where he also served for several years as the academic dean. Dr. Jennings is the author of numerous articles. His his monograph, The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race, won the 2011 American Academy of Religion Award for Excellence in the Study of Religion, and the 2015 Graham Meyer Award in Religion the largest prize for theological work in North America. He has quite literally written the book on the construction of race in the Christian tradition. Dr. Jennings is a great friend to Princeton Seminary and has blessed us with his wisdom and his insight on many occasions. I'm so grateful for his willingness to return to be with us today and to help us to think about the legacy of our history with slavery. Will you please join me in welcoming Dr. Willie Jennings.
1: To President Barnes, to Dr. and Mrs. Hansen, to Dean Walton and his brilliant spouse there with him, to all my faculty colleagues and dear, dear friends, I am thrilled to be here with you today on the occasion of this esteemed lecture for this giant among us, and on the occasion to reflect with you on your report a courageous act to do this report. My my dean, Gregory Sterling, would want me to bring warmest greetings to you, and I do so including my faculty colleagues and students at Yale Divinity School. They would want me to say to you that, along with you, we are endeavoring to do the crucial work at this moment in this country without giving up hope. This is our task. We know that hope is not a sentiment. It is a discipline. And today we must be disciplined by hope. So Dr. and Mrs. Hansen, thank you so much for allowing me to be here and honoring you this day. To educate is to build. The creature builds. All education is inside this truth. The creator builds excuse me, the creature builds as God, the creator, builds. The building of the creature must find its way into the building of the creator, or the creature builds in vain. All theological education is inside this truth. But what happens when our work of building is turned toward death? What happens when our building destroys, destroys, just as it builds up? Slavery, my sisters and brothers, slavery taught us how to build. It taught us how to build a home, how to build a church, how to build a school, and how to build a person. Slavery slavery took a theological truth that the creature builds, gave thanks for it, broke it into pieces, and forced us to eat the fragments. I commend Princeton Theological Seminary, and your courageous president for doing the unprecedented, doing what few institutions in the United States would do, to look deeply, deeply into its own slavery-formed past. The report you produced points in the right directions toward both the advocates of slavery and toward those abolitionists toward the financial rewards of slavery and toward fears of slave release, toward the plans of the colonizers to return black bodies to a black land that they never knew, and toward the courage of slaves and former slaves to find their way to freedom through a faith already deeply damaged by an emerging racial world order. The report illumines that racial world order and in so doing shows us the stones that the builders did not reject. Slavery was the womb, the womb out of which our modern educational institutions emerged, this must not be forgotten. This is easier to see with our oldest and most venerable educational institutions. But no educational institution, indeed, no institution formed in the modern colonial West escapes this legacy because our slavery past is not just about the institution that was the horror of slavery. But also about the institutionalizing process, the institutionalizing process that slavery formed in the world. The slave legacy of Western education, especially theological education, is lodged deeply in our educational imaginations. It's set our work of formation, it set our work of formation inside a pedagogy of the plantation. Plantations throughout the colonial world were always more, always about more than just cultivating crops and preparing goods and services to be exported and imported through the known world. Plantations, Plantations were also about cultivating leadership and establishing a social order necessary for promoting civilization. This was the pedagogical work of the racial paterfamilias, the ruling order of the father master, aimed, always aimed, always aimed at forming sons. Paterfamilius is an ancient term born of ancient slavery in the Greco-Roman world that referred, as many of you know, to a system of rule formed around the body of the master as the font from which flowed the life and logic of a social order. From the racial paterfamilius flowed not only the life and logic of a social order. But also the logic of an educational order of masters and mistresses, of children and slaves and animals, too. All must be taught to know the Lord in heaven and in earth. It was the innovation of slave-holding Christianity within modern colonialism that gave us a vision of formation flawed from its very beginning, flawed from its very beginning. The drama of Princeton Theological Seminary's involvement with colonial slavery, like every school's involvement with slavery, was about the monies gained and the ideas promoted by this flesh buying industry and about the abolitionist drama of debate and advocacy and about the hostilities, persecutions and assassinations suffered by black freedom fighters and others using their education to wage war against their captivity. But at the heart of it all, was a vision of education that sought to form people in a white, self-sufficient masculinity. An education aimed at forming masters even if they don't own plantations. That white, self-sufficient masculinity was not a person but a persona, an intellectual form, an intellectual form that would reach down to the bone and would perform itself in someone who would show mastery in what he knows, exhibit a powerful mind in what he possessed, and give witness to a body in control no matter what he faced. Mastery, possession, control. Mastery, possession, control. This was education aimed at forming those who were now in charge of a new world given to them by God. The colonialist education project was rooted in the desire to master, possess and control indigenous lands and life. And that desire would take definitive shape in the western in western educational formation. Christian colonial settlers believed that they had been given charge by God with the burden the burden of educating new world peoples in order to bring them and the new worlds to their full maturity, and thereby realize their own maturity as Christians. Whiteness emerged as a sick vision of maturity, through which the entire world could be gauged by how well it moves toward and grows into European intellectual form. Aspiration is a key engine in intellectual formation. Aspiration is also the key engine for forming theological, educational institutions. Imagine, if you will, imagine, if you will, the self-sufficient man, who could also be a woman, one self-directed, Never apologizing for his strength or ability or knowledge. One who recognizes his own power and uses it wisely, one bound in courage, moral vision, singularity of purpose, and not given to extremes of desire or anger. This is a compellingly attractive goal for education and moral formation. The power of this vision is that it binds a man, it binds a woman to a task, a job, a vocation, a philosophy that ironically takes the focus off the man, thereby drawing him to a work and a world greater than himself, but inextricable, inextricable from his power, and from himself. White, self-sufficient masculinity is the quintessential image of an educated person, deeply embedded in the collective psyche of Western education and theological education, flexible enough to capture all people and any person so formed to yield to it. Yield to it. It flows through our curricular imaginations, our pedagogical practice, and the ecologies of our academic institutions. Theological institutions like Princeton Theological Seminary have been formed to think and feel inside this aspiration, to cultivate this man, and to cultivate an institution that thinks and feels like the master. The problem is, is that this man, this master, is not Jesus. And not bound to a God who wishes to teach us how to build guiding us in a building that moves us toward life and away from death. Your report gives glimpses of an institution shaped in this cultivated and cultivating man when it shows us those who spoke from the white imperial position of what was best for the slave and what was best for the country. When voices discerned without the voices of the slaves and former slaves, where they should live and how they should live and what they could learn and what they were incapable of learning and most importantly, who they should lead and who they could never lead. PTS was formed in the racial logic of the plantation. Every school was formed in the racial logic of the plantation. It, like so many other theological institutions, is capable at any moment, any moment, in any class, in any administrative operation, through any program, through any faculty or staff or student, of conjuring a ghost. The racial paterfamilias, the white master who sees everyone and listens to no one. Self-directed and aiming to rule. Self-directed and aiming to rule. The racial paterfamilias spirit haunts all Western institutions. But its presence in educational spaces, and especially the Theological Academy, lives close to the surface, ready to assert itself. That spirit lay close to our institutionalizing practice because it was born of Christianity in its colonialist form, moving and feeling itself in the power to dream a world, dream a world, well-organized, running efficiently, like a plantation, where bodies are organic machines and profit begets more profit. Very few organizations today would imagine themselves haunted by the racial patrofamilias. Because they do not know or sense its ancient power that is always present with us. That, however, is a tragic mistake because, like a father always looking to form a son, the ratio paterfamilias, that spirit forms in the psychic spaces and the affective spaces between efficiency. And profit between desired order and desired influence. It seduces ambition and changes vision so that people are seen as tools for use ever being formed toward the role of the slave because every institution wants bodies. If not to give us their treasures, then surely give us their attention and carry our message, carry our message to a world we want on our own terms. The racial paterfamilias, in order to be discerned, in order to be discerned, must be thought and felt. Thought and felt at the same time and many, many people of color know it because we feel it. That sense, that sense of an old sorrow, you can sense that old sorrow strongly now in this country even at this moment of life between an old master dying and a young master coming to life through power. It is like a sick smelling scent riding in on a wind blowing from a past and reaching toward a future. And we who exist in the middle present, smelling and sensing, carry a melancholy undeserved and unwanted. Many people of color carry this melancholy through the academy. They feel the forming of young masters both men and women, and the yielding of a place, a school, or a department, or an organization, to an affective reality of white masculinist longing and concern. The feeling and sensing of the racial patrofamilias, however, remains a mystery to large portions of the academy, especially the theological academy and those who live down in the belly of a school where decisions are made because it first requires entering fully into the affective reality of Western institutional life. There remains, sisters and brothers, there remains a legion of scholars and administrators who continue to hold a dualism of thought and feeling The educational space in their way of thinking is a space of thinking, not feeling. Too many scholars believe in rigorous thinking and banished feelings. So an institution that thinks itself makes sense. It makes sense to them. But an institution that feels itself, feels itself, does not. But institutions feel just as they think. To imagine institutional thinking is also to invite institutional feeling. More specifically, it is to invite an institution to inhabit sensing its comfort, sensing its joy, sensing its energy. Aimed in the right direction even if it's the wrong direction. So the crucial question for us this afternoon, my friends, the crucial question, President Barnes, is what does Princeton Theological Seminary feel like today? What do you sense? What do you sense? At the nexus of institutional thinking and feeling because it is at that nexus that we encounter the racial paterfamilias beckoning us with a tested and true seduction, a tested and true seduction that promises to organize hope and dream, tactic and strategy toward the goal to build the master. I call this nexus of institutional thinking and feeling, the institutional unconscious, similar to what Frederick Jameson called the political unconscious. For Jameson, the political unconscious was the way the world in its relational density politically, socially, economically, showed itself, shows itself in the very things one would imagine are sequestered from such realities. The institutional unconsciousness, that nexus of feeling and thinking, is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. But when captured by the racial paterfamilias, it yields institutional life It yields institutional life to the way whiteness likes to feel. Whiteness feels. It has an affective structure. Like extremely comfortable clothing that moves with the body, whiteness becomes what Ann Ann Lin Chin calls a second skin. Whiteness presents itself as skin and not clothing, forming the emotional glue that denies the distinction between being a creature and racial existence. Whiteness wants to feel institutionally. Whiteness wants to feel in control, to feel a control that is natural and normal and feels necessary for the sake of efficiency and functionality. Whiteness wants to feel mastery, as if it automatically understands and knows what is important to know, just as much as it feels what is unimportant to know. And whiteness wants to feel in possession of that which is worthy to possess, and to know that it is on a path, the right path, to possess all that is important to possession and that the path of humility, intellectual humility is a path toward possession. Whiteness feels normal and natural and therefore always positive unless it is being questioned. So to question whiteness, to question it, feels terrible because it feels as if we are tearing at the fabric of people's lives and questioning the right of particular people to exist. To question whiteness feels like we are throwing people into chaos and fragmentation. It feels like hate speech, questioning institutional whiteness brings people into a forest of feeling that they would prefer to escape. Feelings of guilt, of fear, of feeling overwhelmed by the sheer expansiveness, even ubiquity, of whiteness's reach into our lives. The deepest anxiety of so many people working in institutions is not that whiteness is inescapable, but that the feelings of whiteness are inescapable both its guilt and its addictive and seductive power, because whiteness feels good as long as no one tries to make it feel bad. (laughs) Yet, institutional whiteness conceals its feelings inside academic form, inside white, self-sufficient, Masculinist form. Most of us sitting here today, most of us have been misformed or deformed to imagine serious, serious intellectual engagement in only one modality, through confrontation through forms of disputatio, is the word, through the European mode of disputation, which is rooted in European chivalric war culture, where only through intense and heated exchange and struggle do we arrive at the truth, at rigorous thinking and strong and sure thought, firm thought, beginning with the colonial period, This European cultural form of chivalric intellectual engagement combined with capitalist forms of exchange and with the fragmentation of knowledge, together they became the foundation of the sick ecologies of knowledge that characterize so much of Western intellectual exchange. Where our struggles and our arguments, our struggles and our arguments are over increasingly smaller and smaller and smaller bits of knowledge extracted from their life worlds and turned into commodities. Because our institutional feeling is often concealed in and guarded by, like an attack dog, guarded by this white, self-sufficient, masculinist intellectual form, we have a difficult time coming to the truth and discerning the precise character of the cultivating work that we are always in the midst of doing. What is an institution, my friends? An institution is a sustained work of building. It is a joining aimed at eternity where people commit themselves to a beautiful repetition that they hope will never end, like creating a product or the formation of a process or the cultivating of a person or the sustaining of a presence like an artistic presence or the correcting of a problem that will not yield or the capturing of a hope embodied in a task that seems like a calling. The legacy of slavery gave to us the ratio paterfamilias. And the greatest tragedy of this educational legacy is that it steals from us what God gave to every creature the desire to build, the desire to build, and what the carpenter's son from Nazareth wants to give to us the desire to build together, the desire to build together. That legacy sits there deeply, deeply within our educational institution, aiming to distort our work as educators and students. My friends, listen, you have taken hold, and I commend you and congratulate you and celebrate you. You have taken hold of slavery's legacy at Princeton Theological Seminary. One of the few theological schools to do this. But now, now that you've begun, now you must take hold of slavery's intellectual legacy at Princeton Theological Seminary. Intellectual legacy. If we could call back Someday it will happen. If we could call back from the dead all those generations of students, white students and students of color, all sharing the legacy of slavery with us, and we asked them the crucial questions, what would they say? Those crucial questions are not first, what what did you learn at Princeton Theological Seminary? How did PTS prepare you for the manifold and celebrated ministries that you all had? Those are good questions. Those are good questions. And every development office ought to be asking those questions. <laughs> so just remember that. <laughs> those are good questions. But those are not the crucial questions. The crucial questions begin like this. What did Princeton theological seminary feel like? What did it feel like? What did you sense down at the nexus of feeling and thinking while you lived in this institution? If you closed your eyes and listened with your heart, who did you hear trying to be formed in you? Whose body, whose way of thinking Whose vision of the world was trying to work itself down into your soul? My friends, I think, I think everyone in this room knows how much I love and respect Princeton Theological Seminary and how deeply I care for your president, for your faculty, for the staff, and for you students. So, I think I've earned the right to speak in love and in hope for your future. I've been in theological education all my adult life. And I have known many graduates of this wonderful institution, especially students of color. And many speak of a mixed love and hate for this institution. But let me be clear. I am not casting stones in a glass house. I have been a part of an institution where our graduates spoke of mixed love and hate. There is a word, there is a word that must be spoken in the present when we speak of slavery's past. And that word is reparation. That word is reparation. In a world shaped through colonial theft, so massive, so monstrous, that it defies comprehension, our minds struggle to imagine restoration, return, justice, restoration, return, justice. For those who now comprise a great cloud of witnesses, dead and living, but for theological educational institutions formed in slavery's legacy. Reparations begin for us with simply listening and discerning what our institutions feel like. So dear friends, my first and maybe only suggestion, there might be some more later on, but I'll say more right now. My first suggestion, of what you must do post your important slavery report is to ask your students, past and present, what does Princeton Theological Seminary feel like? Do you feel the racial paterfamilias here? And if so, where do you feel it? And when do you feel it? If you close your eyes today, and listen with your heart. Who do you hear trying to be formed in you? Whose body, whose way of thinking, whose vision of the world are we trying to work down into your soul? We want to know, I speak as a theological educator now, we want to know because we want to build Together with you, not on top of you. You see, the challenge facing all theological institutions today is to engage in a shared work of building together. Too many schools are giving up on real formation, authentic cultivation, because they have not abandoned the dream of the plantation. Born of the racial petrofamilias dream, of forming masters, and they are in mourning that they don't have those kinds of students already poised for such a formation walking through their doors. I'm not making this up. Other schools have abandoned any dream of real shared, real shared formation, real shared cultivation because they don't know how to dream the building in the multitude. So they have created a quiet segregation in their schools where students are cultivated for their context and denied the opportunity to learn how to build a world together. Build communities together. Build lives together. The creature is called to build. If we are willing to yield to the spirit of God, God will draw us and our work of building into the building of God. But sometimes we must abandon what has been built in order to enter God's building work. And sometimes we have to tear down what we have built in order to follow God in building toward life. And sometimes God will take what has been built toward death and turn it toward life. Thank you very much.